0: All right, it's 11 o'clock, and I get everything started here on time. Uh, I'm going to speak for not very long. Uh, this is the second panel, Is Big Tech Too Big? Uh, and I'm going to be turning over the proceedings to my colleague, uh, Peter Van Doren. Peter? I'm Peter Van Doren, a senior fellow here at Cato and editor of the quarterly publication regulation. My first year as editor was 1999, and we... One of my first covers was on the Microsoft antitrust case. If you look at the covers of regulation since then, there hasn't been one on antitrust. Antitrust kind of went away, but oh, is it back, right? Antitrust is now back in a big way. And in fact, the consumer welfare standard that has guided antitrust policies for the last 40 or so years is now in great question on both the left and the right. And instead of consumer welfare, we're now supposed to worry about the big five Google, Apple, uh, Facebook, Microsoft, yes, Microsoft again, and uh, uh, Apple and Amazon. So today we have a panel to talk about big tech and antitrust. We have uh, Christian Stout and Matt Stoller, and I'll let them introduce themselves. They'll talk for 10, 15 minutes each, then we'll have a uh, on the platform discussion here, and then we'll open it up for questions.
1: Uh, So thank you so much for inviting me here. One of the nice things about standing behind a panel is you can't see my sneakers, so um, (laughs) that is my one Uh, non-indulgence to DC culture. Um, Comfortable footwear. So I actually am enormously flattered and honored to be invited to talk today about the politics of commerce and the politics of monopoly. And it is always a pleasure to talk at conservative think tanks because you genuinely have a passion for these kinds of questions. Um, This is the Frederick Hayek Auditorium, right? Right, okay, so... Uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Hayek um, and I wanted to uh, start with a thought from Hayek um, from The Road to Serfdom where he, he actually if you look at the opening line it is a description of fear of monopolies. He's actually quoting FDR. Hayek was afraid of monopolies, private monopolies, because he saw it as a form of dangerous collectivism and it's something that I actually agree with. Now I think big tech are some of the most dangerous institutions that exist today. And that their danger exists because of their dominance and control of markets in information. Now rather than talk about big tech in general, I'm just gonna talk about one particular company, Google, and try to go into the business model a little bit so that we can have some something to really bite into. I'm not totally fluent in Everything that Google does, these are enormously complicated companies. Each business line is quite complicated. But I'll try to describe what Google's business model is. So a lot of people think of Google as a search company or as a tech company or as an advertising company. And there is merit in all of these views. The way I think about it is that it is a financial holding company with a bunch of different divisions, each of which has a dominant market Position in its sphere, or most of which have that. The business model is to both profit off of those dominant um, divisions, but also to tie them together to exclude competitors and thereby control a large share of the online advertising market, which just this year passed the point where it is now bigger than all other ad markets combined, at least domestically. Now, this is dangerous, not just because it's a monopoly that is undermining competition in markets, but because it is about the control of the free flow of information online. I can go into some stats about newspapers and publishers and independent businesses. But I'll just say that the press is collapsing. And at least one of the reasons is that Google and Facebook have redirected the flow of advertising dollars to themselves. Now Google has two main streams of revenue. It sells ads on its own properties, and it, take fee- it takes fees on the plumbing of the entire advertising ecosystem that everybody basically has to use, or most players have to use. So let's start with the consumer-facing side. So it has dominant shares in the search market, in the browser, among browsers, maps, YouTube, Uh, I uh, mobile phone operating systems and it has a lot of power in email. Now, there are many ways the company exploits its power on the consumer-facing side. So let's just go with search for a second. They have 87% of all internet searches, 94% of mobile searches. So a famous example, the company uh, downgraded Yelp which is a local search company on its homepage for local search results as comparing its own, elevating its own local search results against Yelps. This isn't the only time it has engaged in discrimination using its platform to benefit itself and undermine its competition. It did this with a shopping comparison engine or a series of shopping comparison engines. This is a famous case in Europe, the Foundum case. Um, shopping comparison sites help consumers find the cheapest price for a good. If you look for a bicycle, it would give you here are all the places the bicycle is sold, and here are all of the prices. Well, Google started its own shopping comparison engine and then downgraded all of the rest of them, said they were spam, wiped them out. Well, okay, well, you still have a shopping comparison engine, you still have Google's. Then, Google killed its own shopping comparison engine. And it replaced it with an advertising service. So if you search for that bike now, you'll get a bunch of listings of prices for that bike, but based on merchants who are paying for that advertising. So in other words, for those of you who do care about consumer prices, this is a direct case of Google forcing consumer prices up. Another example is the Wall Street Journal's traffic. This is about the manipulation of the free flow of information. 2017, the Wall Street Journal refused to allow Google search users to read its content for free. Wall Street Journal said, we want to locate our content behind a paywall. And Google said, well, we have a rule saying that if you do that, we are going to downgrade you in our search engine. And they did that. Well, subscriptions went up because now you couldn't get the content for free. But traffic to the newspaper dropped by 44%. Okay, so that's just some, there are plenty of examples of how Google uses its dominance. Um, But what about the ad plumbing side? This is the part that's harder to understand. Well, Google AdSense and Google Ads have, these are are ad networks that third-party websites use. They place their ad inventory into them. Well, Google has a, 84% 84% market share of ad networks, AdMob, which does the same thing for apps. Millions of apps rely on Google's AdMob ad service, although they might have rebranded it. It's dominant share of that, both in iOS apps and Android apps. And then you have a very complex auction market where publishers and advertisers and data brokers essentially sell advertising and buy advertising in a real-time system that looks a lot like the stock market. And Google owns software at every layer, the software that advertisers use to plan campaigns, the software that publishers use to manage inventory, the software that matches it, the software that tracks it. So let me talk about how Google uses its tying arrangements to uh, dominate ad plumbing. So Google has search data. This is what John Battelle calls a database of intentions. It knows what you think because you tell it, we tell it. Here's what I'm searching for. Well, if you're Cadillac and you want to advertise, probably helps to know who is searching for, I need a new car, or, huh, looking at that, you know, how much does this Cadillac cost? Well, Google has tied its search data to use of Google Ad software. So if you wanted to use, get access to that data, you have to also use Google Ad buying products, which allows Google to see important parts of your business and exclude competitors. Another example is its use of YouTube. So I know we've seen lots of scandals on YouTube, terrorist content, you know, Procter & Gamble ads showing up next to terrorist content or there's recently there was a pedophilia scandal. Scandal after scandal after scandal after scandal. But big ad buyers keep coming back to YouTube. They always say, oh, you know, we are really revisiting our, you know, ad budgets in YouTube. And they always come back because it is a dominant player. You have to be on YouTube to reach people. Well, in in 2015, Mondelez International, which owns brands like Oreos, Triscuits, and Wheat Thins, big ad buyer, $200 million a year, said, we are going to buy, we're going to switch a lot of money online. We're going to buy online video. Uh, But they were not using... Google's software to buy online video ads. They were using software come from a company called TubeMogul. Well, Google said, if you wanna buy certain important inventory parts of YouTube, you have to use, uh, let me, Google's double-click bid manager demand-side software. And in 2015, Mondelez did that. They were forced to make that switch. So this has significant consequences for the advertising market and the technology that people use to buy and sell ads. So in 2014, YouTube Mogul went public. In 2016, Tube Mobile, with its stock cut in half, was bought by Adobe. There is basically very little venture investment in the ad tech market, which used to be a vibrant sphere with lots of innovation. If you are a publisher or an advertiser or in the ad tech market, you must essentially use Google, a little bit Facebook sometimes, software to plan, run, analyze your campaign to manage, sell, or organize your ad inventory, and everyone else tends to die. To give you a sense of what this is doing to publishers and their revenue stream, and why I say that the loss, the collapse of... The Free Press is related to this. So the Australian Competition Authority did a sectoral analysis of the online advertising sector. And there's a dispute. If you put a dollar into this complex ad auction market and it shows up on an ad on a publisher, how much money does that publisher get? It filters through this complex system. Well, the Australian Competition Authority is a dispute. There's disputes over this. Google has the information. Facebook has some of the information. Nobody knows. And the FTC, because of their policy of napping, um, doesn't actually ask for this information. So we don't know. But um, what, what people say is between 25 and 50 cents goes to the publisher of that dollar. And this is for an ad that shows up on that publisher's site. And between 50 and 75 cents goes to intermediaries. I'm sure Google would dispute this, but we just don't know, and they have the information, and no one else does. That is a big cut of fees. Right? That is that is that is substantial. Imagine if you had to buy a like IBM stock. I know no one buys IBM stock anymore. But let's say it was twenty dollars, and you had to pay hundred dollars for it. That's for twenty dollars share of stock. That's what's going on here. Not a perfect analogy, but you know, I'm just one person, so. Okay, now one could argue all this is a result of Google's products just being better, right? They're better than the competition. Competition is just a click away. Maybe Google downgraded Yelp or found them or the Wall Street Journal because that's what its users want. But if that's the case, then why did Google pay Apple $9 billion last year so that its search engine can be the default on Apple's Safari iPhone web browser? I, I know that Tim Cook likes to talk about how he is a wonderful, wonderful man when it comes to privacy, and Apple really cares about your privacy. Okay. Why, if people just love Google's uh, search engine, does it force phone companies that use Android and Play to install its search engine? I mean, if it's so good, why do they have, why do they have to do that? Perhaps users love Google Search. Perhaps they're just never exposed to any alternative. And they don't know any better because of all of this payola. The point here is that Google runs a series of dominant networks, each of which has the power on its own to discriminate and engage in anti-competitive behavior. Then it interweaves these platforms in ways that make competition extremely difficult. Now, I'm going to finish by making a political point. Now, this is a conservative think tank. Not everybody in the audience is a conservative, and I know this is a, we're talking a lot about privacy. But I want to make a point that I think will resonate with everyone, which is I think we should be deeply afraid of the power that Google, Facebook, and Amazon wield. Because I just went into Google. Facebook and Amazon have somewhat similar business models. I'm not talking about Microsoft and Apple, because they're big, but they're like, they're less predatory. A lot of people, um, you know, they think politicians are stupid, can't manage this kind of problem. But let me just read you a quote from Eric Garcetti, who is the Democratic mayor of Los Angeles, who was asked about concentration in big tech. Now, I have used this quote before. It was better when I could say that Eric Garcetti was one of 8,000 Democrats who was going to run for president. But I can't say it because he's not. However, his attitude is fairly common. Here's what he said about concentration in tech markets. I don't fear it, and I don't oppose it. I want to try to help guide it. Politicians know what these companies are, and they are happy to use their power to repurpose it for their own social ends. Two Yale scholars, Kay Klonick and Thomas Kadri, I think Thomas is here, um, argued that platforms represent, I'm going to quote, the new, our new governors. They suggested that these platforms start a Supreme Court, like a Supreme Court for Facebook. There's a bunch of quotes in here. I'm not going to read them, but you get the gist. Here's Mark Zuckerberg. Quote, Facebook is more like a government than a traditional company. <laughs> Thank you. I got one laugh. I like that. <laughs> uh, I just looked on On uh, the, the job listing is closed, but, but YouTube um, was hiring, and this is pretty common across the platforms a policy enforcement specialist. These companies have policies and large policy compliance departments. I don't know if you have that in regulation, but. So we are beyond the question of whether big tech companies like this are monopolies. They certainly are. But a better question is whether they are governments. And if they are, whether we should apply the same skepticism that conservatives and populists on the left have towards the always potentially dangerous and coercive power of government, whether we should apply that to these new private governments that both parties, through pro-monopoly competition policy enforcement, have enabled. Now, many politicians on the left and the right are happy to nationalize the power that these platforms have organized or to do it de facto and to fuse the power of the state with these private estates. You see that happening explicitly in China, but it could happen here. So I'll just close by saying that if we as a society and as individuals and communities want liberty, we must break up these institutions. We must protect our markets with public rules against monopolization conflicts of interest, and concentrations of private power. Because either we regulate our markets to ensure competition and liberty, or we will have no markets, we will have no competition, and we will have no liberty.
2: It's a pleasure to be here. I'm Christian Stout. I'm Associate Director at the International Center for Law and Economics. Uh, don't get too excited. I don't expect to have as many laughs as Matt had, so but I'll try my best. Um, <clears throat> I also care a lot about liberty, but um, it may not be surprising that I come out on a completely different side than, than Matt does. The big tech companies are not dangerous monopolies, uh, despite the fears that circulate in the popular press. These firms are certainly powerful. No one would dispute that but merely being powerful says nothing about whether these firms are net positive or negative for society. Uh, to actually make a plausible claim against these firms requires something more, some evidence of anti-competitive conduct that actually harms the competitive process and consumer welfare more generally. Uh, increasingly, criticism of the big tech companies is coming from a group of scholars and commentators re- frequently referred to as the populists, or the neo-Brandeisians, um, after su- former Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis, who, who was notoriously skeptical of large enterprises in general. Taking up Brandeis' mantle, that big is bad. These critics charge that large firms by their very nature are harmful to the competitive process and possibly to democracy itself. I think you've got a flavor of that that view from from Matt's comments. (laughs) Further, these critics contend that modern antitrust law is incapable of adequately dealing with these harms owing to special features of tech companies. The populists tend to frame their arguments in one of two ways, more, more generally speaking. Uh, first, there is some ideal number of competitors in a given market that should exist before you can deem that that market is competitive. Uh, and second, that there are subsidiary non-competition specific goals that antitrust law should incorporate uh, in, uh, that, that currently is not contemplated by antitrust law. Although I believe their criticisms are in good faith, I think the populists are ultimately misguided in, in the assaults that are undergoing on the big tech companies. A general problem for the populace that is particularly evident when looking at tech firms is that it's not possible ex ante to understand whether a large firm necessarily harms competition without knowing more about the competitive dynamics of particular markets. Uh, this is to say one cannot reliably maintain that big is bad across all instances as a matter of course. It, would be, it could be that large firms acquire and maintain an anti-competitive monopoly, or it could also be that the firms grew large by serving the interests of their consumers. Uh, and they just simply outcompeted other firms. Basing policy on the presumption about the size of firms will yield at best arbitrary results and at worst uh, politically biased uh, whims of enforcement officials. More specifically, some populists contend that the peculiarities of how Internet-based platforms work means that traditional antitrust tolerance for large firms is no longer appropriate. Uh, for the tech platforms. This critique is rooted in the existence of network effects on the platforms, meaning that, uh, and it, meaning that the, the value of the platform to individual users is dependent on, uh, on, on one hand, the, the quantity and quality of other users that you can interact with, think Facebook and your friends. And on the other side, um, uh, the, the third parties that you can contract with. For instance, Amazon, the value of Amazon is to some extent a function of how many other uh, sellers you can access on the Amazon platform. The concern that the populists tend to voice here is that um, this creates positive feedback loops on these platforms such that you get lock-in from users and no one can can escape these platforms as a result Uh, and that these platforms become uh, insulated from uh, from competition permanently because they have large data pools or because there's cost switching or um, lack of uh, competitive alternatives and so forth. I think this concern is misguided. In particular, with respect to high-tech markets... Um, there's, uh, there's a lot of dynamism in these markets that, that, that undermines this argument. Despite the rapidity with which these services can grow large, these markets do not inevitably result in a single uh, unmovable winner, particularly where consumers have a variety of preferences. Development of alternative goods and services uh, is easy, and multi-homing is prevalent, meaning that uh, if I use Facebook, I am not forbidden from using competing alternatives. If a competing alternative arises that is a, is a good service, there's nothing about Facebook that locks me into Facebook per se. Uh, crucially, even with network effects operating in a market with few competitors, there's no reason to believe that anti-competitive effects will necessarily arise. There can be just as much competition for the market itself as there can be within the market, meaning that uh, when uh, when you have a large dominant firm like a Facebook or a Google uh, over a particular area, if we presume for the moment that they, they actually have uh, market dominance in a particular area, uh, a competitor can arise that threatens their control of of the market itself, rather than being a competitor within that market. And the economics literature demonstrates that this can have just as much of a disciplining effect on the firms that are operating within that market as 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 though they had direct competition within the markets. Um, a related point to this that is really crucial, and I think that we miss a lot when we look at these big tech firms because they're they're large, and you know get your hackles up a little bit, and and you get concerned, is that it's easy to misunderstand the markets that these firms operate in because they apparently operate in certain markets. But in fact, I think we get the market definition wrong, meaning how we understand the the different, the way we should understand the competitors these firms face. Uh, uh, There are obvious cases of this. For instance, the EU um, had a a case against um, Google for its Android operating system. And and when when it looked at that market, it it discounted Apple's op, op, iOS as a competitor to the Google Android operating system. And by, by very carefully gerrymandering the way that market worked, it was able to find competitive harms from Google that, in fact, I think would be much more difficult to find if you, if you treated the iPhone as a, a valid competitor of, of Android. But the problem is somewhat more subtle and important than that. Facebook is apparently a social network. Uh, Google is famously a search engine. Matt was right. They have a lot of different services, but we tend to think of Google as a search engine. Um, And Amazon, we think of as an e-commerce platform. And and so at at a first glance, you might look at those three firms and say those are three separate companies. They don't compete with each other. Uh, But the fact is, both Facebook and Google offer zero-price services to consumers, and the way that they make money, however controversially, uh, you been in the news a lot, and Matt made sure you touched on this point: is by putting ads in front of users. In that sense, both Facebook and Google are direct competitors with each other, and almost certainly discipline each other's conduct in how they they conduct that business. It's not the fact that it, that Google faces no competitors on the advertising um, uh, in the advertising marketplace. It's just, it's just simply not true when you look at it in that view. Um, Google uh, uh, Google likewise is a direct competitor with Amazon, even though we don't necessarily think about it. Matt actually touched on that in his remarks. Google right now has a shopping service that uh, allows people to go on their search engine and do comparative shopping, and the interest for Google in that sense is in having contracts with merchants who will post their goods in Google Shopping Service in order to find potential users. That's essentially the same business model that Amazon's offering on its marketplace, where both Amazon and Google compete for... The, the, the ad dollars and the participation of merchants on their services. In that sense, Google and Amazon are both direct competitors with each other over that slice of, of, uh, of business. And then even when you look at the very small amount of Google searches that are actually monetizable, most I think it's something like 94% of Google searches are completely worthless from a, uh, a commerce point of view. So about 6% of Google searches actually result in something that any, any firm could monetize. When you look at that small search, Google actually faces a number of very interested, very efficient small competitors that give it a lot of problems. Matt mentioned Yelp. The fact is that on the part of Google search results that are monetizable, Yelp is a very strong competitor on the mobile app space. Google is constantly struggling to figure out how to to do that competition. It might be the case that in their search results, um, Yelp does not feature prominently, but it's not the case that Yelp does not remain a valid competitor of Google in that sense. But if you just look at Google as a search engine company, that has apparently no competitors, you could miss the dynamics uh, in that definition. Um, it's a peculiar form, uh, well, stepping back for a moment. Uh, Amazon is described as a dominant e-commerce company. This is another market definition issue that I think it's easy to forget. Uh, I probably spend like most of my money on, on Amazon in terms of, of shopping, so I, I, I understand the, the uh, automatic feeling that, uh, that when you think about Amazon as a dominant e commerce, oh, they must control a tremendous amount of, of uh, business. They must be a dangerous monopolist. But the fact is, the internet is not a market, the internet is merely a distribution channel. And it's a mistake to treat Amazon's dominance over a particular distribution channel as meaning that they are also a monopolist over an entire marketplace. Um, it makes little more sense to brand Amazon as a retail monopolist than it would have, than it would have been to say that JCPenney or Sears were department store monopolists when, when malls were, were a thing. Um, the fact is that you actually need to... I actually got a little laugh there. Okay, so we're tied. <laughs> ah, ah. In the question and answer, we'll, we'll vie for more laughs. Um, the fact is that if you really want to think about Amazon's dominance, you need to think about them as a retail company. And when you look, think about them as a retail company, they're still very important. Uh, they still capture something like 5% of, of uh, United States commerce on their platform, but it's a far cry from a dominant position. They are vying Walmart both online and offline, Target both online and offline. And when we focus solely on their dominance over the Internet distribution mechanism, I think we miss a lot of the important dynamic characteristics that contribute to our well-being as a people. Um, and then this all, of course, ignores the fact that uh, all of these firms are worried about firms abroad, especially in China, Alibaba, Baidu, and Tencent, from finding the, the right traction in our markets and coming in and competing. That pressure that these firms abroad that have captured uh, uh, other foreign markets exert over the, market, the, the firms that operate in the United States absolutely has a restraining effect on, on the behavior of those firms in the United States. So it's a mistake to think that, that there's not a, a competition-chastening effect there. Uh, thinking about the tech platforms in the preceding economic terms, though, I think is to some extent to talk past populists and the concerns that people like Matt have. Uh, I think that when, when they talk about uh, monopoly, there's a more popular sense that the neo-Brandeisians employ in which a monopoly is just a dangerously large firm, however you want to define that. And I don't want to dismiss that, but um, I'm going to dismiss it now. Uh, Two. Uh, The development of antitrust law over the last 120 years, I think, actually refutes the view of there being just dangerously large firms, however you define them, as underdeveloped. Uh, Tech platforms, although presenting novel business models, and they do all kinds of weird different things sometimes, um, I'm not going to uh, refute that, but they're not so fundamentally different in how they operate that the tools of antitrust law that we have developed are incapable of examining them and rectifying harms when we locate them. we may fear what is new because of an instinctive, ancient survival strategy that's baked into our brains. I think in, in a dynamic, modern economy, we do ourselves a disservice to give in to this fear blindly, however. Uh, when we hear calls to break up tech platforms or prevent them from acquiring startups, a crucial question is necessary. Why? Answers such as they harm democracy or they make it harder for smaller firms to operate are analytically empty. They elide over the necessary costs and benefits that need to be considered when imposing legal constraints on individuals and firms in our society. Before we accept radical action that could harm our well-being, we should demand a careful analysis of any proposed policy. It's possible that tech platforms present some new, insuperable problem for antitrust law. Uh, but to date, the alleged harms and proposed lem- remedies are rooted in the muddled understandings of 19th century thinking. While many of the non-competition goals the populist champion are worthy of consideration, uh, it would be a dangerous mistake to incorporate these factors into antitrust law. Uh, they would not only confuse the analysis of competition, they would remove the consideration of valid political concerns uh, from the democratically elected branches of our government. More to the point, the evolution of antitrust law in the U.S. demonstrates that to some extent these sorts of political ends were considered and they were progressively rejected by courts and enforcers over time. Uh, early antitrust law was ambiguous in its aim. Senator Sherman proposed his legislation as a way to ensure both full and free competition as well as a means to prevent increased costs to consumers. Moreover, the drafters of the Sherman Act were not concerned with all monopolies, even at at the time, uh, but regarded those who gained dominance in a line of business uh, uh, by virtue of superior skill as inoffensive to the law. And from the first cases, courts immediately began to try to figure out how to tease apart these generalized concerns that that Matt brings up and that different ones that existed in the 19th century, how to tease those apart from those things that the courts would need in order to put into place an effective competition policy. Uh, In 1898... Judge Taft recognized this could not, um, that uh, the Sherman Act's prohibition on literally every contract that restrained trade could not literally be true, and he added important glosses to the way antitrust law worked that is not found in the text of, of the Sherman Act, but is actually uh, resonates with the legislative intent that um, effective competition be protected. Uh, similarly, in 1911, even as the Supreme Court broke up the Standard Oil Trust, it it broke up only unreasonable monopolies, not reasonable monopolies, and, and by doing so it read into the law this concept that we want to try to find um, competition harms that unreasonably harm consumers and leave the ones that actually give us benefits. There is not a, uh, an automatic presumption that is appropriate in, in many cases in antitrust law, and over time we've seen the law move away from knee-jerk reactions to particular business forms and do a more probing analysis to try to discover when there actually are offsetting costs and benefits. Uh, What those early court decisions began continued through the 20th century as the discipline of economics matured, and we began to develop a better grasp for how to understand the behavior of firms and consumers and markets. Though maligned by the populists, uh, far from instituting a revolution, the Chicago School, which um, is a particular school of economics, if you're not familiar, that, that has a a distinct view of, of antitrust, which we could talk about in a little bit, the, the Chicago School merely clarified the different strands uh, of thought that had long been present in the law. And they developed analytical tools that were sorely needed in order to give coherence to the body and, and give, give good effect for society. All of this culminated in, the, culminated in the development of uh, what Peter referred to as a consumer welfare standard, um, it, which merely asks, despite how it gets clouded in econometric terms and it gets complicated by um, academic economists who who present about it, and it's kind of hard to understand in that view. All the consumer welfare standard asks us to do is evaluate the costs and benefits of both the conduct of a firm as well as the the costs and benefits of proposed uh, regulatory or legal remedies to those things against the frame of how it affects us as individuals in society. Typically, it calls us consumers, but I think that's actually a much broader term in a lot of ways. Um, and when you look at antitrust laws being guided by that principle, it, is, it, is, it yields to society more benefits than costs on average. and should not be easily dismissed. One of the chief benefits of this standard is not necessarily that it's the best standard, although I, I think it might be, uh, but that it's a standard at all. It entails a set of inquiries that can predictably guide a legal investigation. The populists today, who call for sanctions on the tech platforms, however, advocate for us to revive the, from the murky protoplasm of antitrust law, a view of competition in which enforcers, enforcers can sometimes punish firms that raise prices and sometimes punish firms that um, engage in so-called uh, destructive competition that, because they lower prices too much without really elucidating why it is sometimes higher prices are, are valuable and sometimes lower prices are valuable. Uh, none of this is to belittle the non-competition concerns that uh, populists advocate for. I think that, um, as a society, we should, we should think about the kind of people we want to be. I think the proper, thinking about the proper leverage between labor and capital is a good thing for us to discuss. Um, I think how we think about free speech rights and expression rights and the right of self-determination, these are all really useful things to think about. I don't think that they're appropriate for antitrust law to consider. I think that these need to be issues that constituents discuss with their representatives and that representatives debate in legislatures. These are, not enforcement, uh, these, are, these are not subjects that should be considered and decided through arcane antitrust enforcement procedures in a manner that creates political discretion without political accountability. The effort of the populace to pursue the tech platforms because of size alone or out of commitment to non-competition goals is an effort to return us to a bygone era before rigorous analysis was the norm. The populace want to make antitrust great again, as it were. Three. <laughs> I'm not going to comment. I don't, I don't want to argue about that point. <clears throat> they want to go after today's tech titans for using, uh, by using the same theories that were retired in the, in the 20th century because they were found to increase political discretion without appreciably developing coherent competition law principles. It would be a mistake to join the anti-tech hysteria currently in vogue and use that fervor to reflexively upend a stable body of law that has helped nurture a truly dynamic market that benefits us all. Thank you.
0: I will uh, I had thought of a bunch of things to ask you, and now I'm going to change what I. Uh, so let me try to both pin you down. Um, so, uh, Given that we've had the consumer welfare standard guiding any trust intellectual thinking for 30, 40 years, um, what I heard today, particularly from Matt, was I'd never thought I'd hear a long discussion about whether about the market for advertising, and whether or not that was crucial to public policy debate. Um, so I want to talk. I want to ask both of you whether explicitly whether you think the consumer welfare standard, as articulated by Bork and then Chicago the school economists, et cetera, um, whether that standard should still apply to antitrust. Uh, policy discussions? And if so, how does then the market for advertising work into that um, consumer welfare discussion? Either one of you can start, the gentleman.
1: That is a complicated question. That is a so very complicated it. question. So <laughs> I think there are a number of problems with the discussion of the consumer welfare standard and technology, and I want to highlight one of them, which I think cuts to the central incoherence of how these debates often accrue. Accrue was the wrong word for that sentence, but it was in my head. <laughs> came out at the right cadence. So, you know, one of the things that, that 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 you talked about, which I thought was important, was how we think about enforcement and the ideology behind it. And you posited, an, I think, an ideological construction of populism, size big is bad, structuralist versus Chicago school price theory, economically economic uh, analytics through uh, sort of a conservative Stigler frame, <coughs> which I think is fair. That's a fair way to set it up. But then you also said that the Brandeisians want to sanction the tech companies and sort of portrayed that as a kind of populist argument. One of the things I'm constantly hearing from advocates of the consumer welfare school is, look, the consumer welfare standard, we can enforce against big tech. So I think there's an incoherence here because either you believe, I think you're you're basically talking about enforcement and one of the arguments is consumer welfare, we can enforce under it. And then when it actually gets to the question of, all right, well, what's the enforcement going on? You're saying, oh, well, those populists, they just want to do enforcement. Mm. So I think we have to separate out the ideologies from whether there's a real case or whether there's real enforcement. Because if it is the case that consumer welfare just means no enforcement, I would agree that's a clear standard. But I also would not agree that that has any consistent basis in antitrust law. And I'm also going to note another, I think, incoherent statement. This one is really pedantic, but I'm going to enjoy it. Um, uh, So you talked about our muddle of 19th century thinking, but then you quoted a decision from Taft from 1898, which just sneaks under the 19th century radar. And I think this is kind of an important, it's an important framework, because these are not new problems. We saw these problems with railroads. We saw them with telegraphs. We've seen them at the post office, with pipelines. These are are problems of network systems. And we do care what people said in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century about how to organize commerce. And I think it's important to care about that, and not to portray this as a kind of, oh, we're modern, or we're not. Because what this is really about is an ideological discussion about whether we want an aristocratic society or not, whether we want Godzilla versus Mothra, that kind of competition, or whether we want to have a society where we have the liberty as producers to come together and exchange our goods, our ideas, our products, our labor, and so on and so forth. Now, to get to advertising, I think there's a long, there's a lot of law and uh, media policy telecommunications policy, not all antitrust policy, that's looking at how we've done. We've kept a decentralized information commons. You could go back to the post office in 1792, but you, you can bring it forward um, to the some of the rules that were put in the 1996 Telecommunications Act on how telecommunications providers could use information. You could go to um, the Radio Act. There, I'll go Herbert Hoover. The Radio Act, who say that radio, um, You couldn't own radio stations and also own um, telephone networks or wire networks. Uh, There were a host of antitrust cases on, um, I think it was one, is called the Lorraine Journal. This was in the 50s where the Supreme Court agreed with the Department of Justice saying that there was a newspaper that was a dominant kind of platform for advertising in a particular town. They owned a newspaper. They owned a radio station. And then there was a new radio station. And they said to their uh, advertisers, if you advertise on this new radio station, you can't advertise with us. And the DOJ said, no, this is a a problem. Uh, And the Supreme Court agreed. And there's a lot of case law around um, vertical integration, um, the the movie studios. There's a lot of case law around networks and antitrust. But there's also um, Ronald Reagan broke up AT&T. There we go. Um, th- there's there's a lot of um, uh, there are also a lot of regulatory tools, competition tools, consumer protection tools, anti-competitive or pro-competitive rules that work to decentralize information networks, which has to do not just with advertising but with how we as a society are able to have community sovereignty through controlling our information uh, networks. And I just kind of want to make one last point, which which I think sometimes gets a little bit lost. And that is, when we talk about broadly anti-monopoly or competition policy, we're talking about a broad set of goals with a bunch of different levers. And when we're talking about antitrust policy, which is a narrow part of that, we're really talking about competition in markets. Our view is not that you should say, oh, we care about democracy and lots of other fuzzy goals, and we should put that into an analytical framework to enforce the law. Our view is that you should enforce the law to ensure that there is competition in markets, and that that has important political goals, but that isn't actually how you instrumentalize the enforcement. So just to to be clear, that's our view. It isn't necessarily everyone's view, but that, that that is what we think. Um, I don't know if that answers your question on advertising, but I'll just go back to the 19th century, early 19th century. Um, both the subsidization of the flow of newspapers in America was part of it. Was part of the Postal Act of 1792, and um, and it was important. It was a it was a new way of distributing information, and advertising has been a protection, a shield for newspapers and for the, the people from the state since the early 1800s. It is a financing mechanism for our free speech since the early 1800s. If you centralize control of the financing and distribution of information in this country, it is an experiment that we have never seen. It is an agglomeration of power that we have never seen. And it is something, I'll just say, to Tocqueville was very impressed with all of the newspapers we had. Not that they were good, but there were a lot of them. Um, but there is incredible danger in centralizing both the financing and distribution of information in this country and and frankly globally.
2: Um, so I'll just start by saying that uh, I noticed you mentioned Godzilla vs Mothra and I'm a big fan of those movies. Oh, no. So maybe I got that wrong. <laughs> maybe that's why I'm such a pro-monopolist. I don't know. <laughs>
1: um I thought you were going to say Mothra and Godzilla don't fight. There's some, like, weird Godzilla
2: people always, like, are like, you got that wrong. I don't know enough <laughs> to, like, argue on the, the doctrinal issues of Godzilla being Mothra, <laughs> but I know I really like the movies. <laughs> um, okay, so... Uh, <laughs> I, I like I like the Taft point that you brought up. I just want to say I didn't bring up Taft to say that we should go to Addison Pipe as the, the, the foundation for co- current antitrust law. More to point out that immediately after enacting the Sherman Act, everyone realized, wow, we really need to fix this somehow. And that was one of the first cases that really wrestled with that issue, that uh, vagueness and antitrust uh, and competition policy um, uh, is, is not useful, and we need to do something more with it. Um, I think that also, I would just push back a little bit, Matt mentioned just now, uh, when you started talking about the consumer welfare standard, to say, well, everyone who says, I, I think the consumer welfare standard to answer your question can handle these problems, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But I think it's a mistake to look at the state of enforcement and say, well, we don't see we don't see you punishing Google and Facebook and Amazon and Apple and Microsoft, uh, so there must not be any effective consumer welfare standard. I think that's a mistake for a couple of reasons. It's possible that they are doing things that are not being enforced, but there's that's not necessarily the reason of the consumer welfare standard. It's also possible that these firms are aware of the way the law exists and operate in the shadow of the law and conform their conduct with, with that law. Now, they might go right up against the boundary of what is considered legally permissible, but it is not illegal to be legal up until a boundary. Right? So there might be areas where we look at it and we would prefer that uh, generalized policy shapes the behavior of these firms differently But that doesn't mean that they're operating illegally, and the lack of enforcement, uh, if there is a lack of enforcement, um, does not necessarily mean that the consumer welfare standard um, is inadequate. Um, So I think that um, what we need to understand first about the consumer welfare standard is it's not a superpower that we can just employ, and all of a sudden everything gets fixed. All it is is an analytical framework. As I said in my comments, when we engage in a consumer welfare standard analysis, what we're really saying is, rather than giving in to an urge to say, I have some idealized preconception about how this market should look or function, uh, I'm going to engage in a careful analysis. I'm going to try to understand, I'm scared of the way uh, Google runs its ad business, but I want to understand what are the benefits that that gives to society and to producers and consumers. What are the costs that it has? And now think of the proposed remedy that you would have. Say we we went with what I think is Matt's uh, ideal of breaking up the different segments of the vertical stack that Google has in advertising.
1: Just break it all up and then break those pieces. Right, break, break it up. Just keep pieces. breaking it.
2: Just get a big hammer. But realistically, breaking up some of the pro competitive
1: rules. And what, what you would
2: have to do is do an analysis and say, what would that do to the, the effect on the ad market? Rather than, than saying, well, I think that if we had more competitors, it would necessarily be better. You have to try to quantify that somehow. Because the fact is that we do live in a world in which we enjoy a number of benefits from the system that we have. And and we can always be in a better world, and we should try to move toward a better world, but we should not do that um, blindly and without analytical rigor. So the consumer welfare standard can incorporate these things. What we need is people recommending that. And that gets to the point of how antitrust law evolves. It started in the 19th century, and we have the doctrine has evolved to a point today. And there are areas that the tech platforms present new business models, as I mentioned. I think... I probably will get some pushback from Matt on this, I guess. But the Amex case, I think, represents the courts trying to understand how the platform economy works. I think there's a case in front of the Supreme Court now, Apple v. Pepper, which theoretically could represent a further uh, refinement of antitrust doctrine as it applies to tech platforms. Um, We do need to adopt our doctrines, but the consumer welfare standard is capable of of handling that. As to the advertising-specific application... I haven't really studied the advertising market enough to say precisely how you would apply the consumer welfare standard in that area. Um, so I don't want to um, go outside of, of, of what I know uh, on that. Um, except to say that I don't think it's fair to presume that. Um, uh, the, Matt tells a great story. Like you say, oh, well, look, they own all these, these companies in a stack. You know, that, that might Thank be you. right. That, that might be. That's something that's interesting to look at. I don't think it's fair, though, to automatically jump to the presumption that it's threatening or nefarious and that we should uh, break it up, as I mentioned.
1: Let me, Can I just let, say one, one yep. last thing? So uh, just a general principle, the, the premise that we should be humble and that we should have really clear analytics before anything happens, let me turn that around on you and note that Google and Facebook and Amazon are not did not come out of a, of a, a pristine state of nature Uh, Facebook is a uh, roll-up. It didn't start in a garage. It's a roll-up of 70-plus companies. Google is a roll-up of over 200 companies. Not a single one was challenged by the FTC or DOJ. So if there's a consumer welfare standard, that they're doing any enforcement, we haven't seen it. Um, There was very little actual analysis of what these kinds of roll-ups would mean. Google bought its main competitor in the online ad network and analytical tool market called DoubleClick in 2007. It did the same thing. With AdMob in uh, I guess 2009, 2011, these are these are these are a result of mergers. So, if you're going to apply the a really aggressive standard of of care before doing anything to these kinds of of giant conglomerates, you should probably apply that same sort of standard before you allow them to buy up every single or most companies in a very important and vibrant part of the economy.
0: Can I let me push this a little? Still haven't heard much. Let me ask for an anecdote of both of either of you, which is, um, for Matt, is there, do you have an anecdote or evidence about the price of something going up because the market for advertising is very, very monopolized. and thus their, their consumers are unaware of a, the low price thing out there because they're getting squeezed. By the the system you describe, and for Christian, the other way I mean I'll ask you the opposite, which is um, is there evidence is there any evidence out there that you're aware of in the literature that this system that we 're de- describing today has made prices of something or everything gone down or or it's possible we don't have much evidence one way or the other about the prices of something caught up in this price search apparatus that you're both describing?
2: Uh, so, um, I th- I, I th- okay, well, one, one, as an anecdote, and this is not a comprehensive study, there's, um, there's some thought that firms like Amazon, for instance, shifting. Because of the way they behave, and I think Google, too, in, in terms of being able to expose price information to consumers, has actually read, led to a, an overall reduction in price inflation over the last ten years. That uh, economists are seeing that there's like a suspiciously low amount of price inflation in, in goods and services, and and it's a complicated story, no doubt. But an important part of that is the information discovery process that these firms have. Now, how, how does advertising play into that directly? That's I think it's hard to say. I'm not aware of literature that explicitly connects those two things, but it's part of a, an ecosystem in which the services that facilitate access to greater amounts of information are funded. So my initial presumption would be to be very careful about disrupting that ecosystem um, because of this exact kind of benefit that you see.
0: Well, I don't know. I'm just saying, do we know? And to you, Matt, are there evidence of prices Yeah, so I'll give you
1: a couple of examples. So remember, prices are for buyers and sellers. So if you're in the ad market, like let's say you're a publisher, what you've seen are prices of advertising have collapsed. The price of advertising that you get has gone way, way down. The, um, uh, I, I brought up the Foundum case, which is where you have these shopping comparison engines. Those are, are now all gone, and now Google is giving people price information that is not necessarily the lowest price that they could get earlier. So that's costing people probably a bunch of money. I could. There are other cases where Google manipulates its search engines in ways that cost people, in some cases, their lives. Um, But uh, I would say that uh, there was a story that just came out about how uh, there was this man in England, but we we see this over and over. Um, His daughter killed herself, and she was a user of Instagram. And because of Instagram's recommendation engine, uh, it it kept showing her pictures of suicides because she was suicidal. And he blames Instagram for that. I don't know, know. I can't really speak to that specific any specific case. But I think you could argue that um, a, a recommendation engine that is showing a, an ex-Oxycontin addict um, images of, of, of drugs or, or showing depressed people images of, of depression is a, is a cost increase. I don't like the consumer welfare standard because I think it's a stupid way to look at the world, but I think you could find that um, really easily. I, I also think we don't have, um, you know, Amazon changes its prices a couple million times a day, but one of the things we do know they're doing is they're placing, when you search on Amazon for a product, they will often place their own private label version of that product in front of uh, your search results. Sometimes they will place Uh, their own, they're selling the same product, and they might even place their own uh, product in front of, or they might place the product that they're selling, and it sometimes has a higher price. Um, It's really just about a marketplace that they control, and they're manipulating the search results. But then I'll also go on the producer side. One of the things is if you're a third-party merchant, Facebook, sorry, Amazon has massive pricing power. So Uh, they raise their warehouse fees, their logistics fees. uh, And, you know, effectively, if you want to sell online, if you structure your business to sell online, there's a swath of, of businesses that have to sell through Amazon. And so the prices that they have to pay are going up. Now, that's on the producer side, and that's meaningful because we are not just consumers. We are producers, and that is a big fundamental part of our liberty. But, yeah, I think there are plenty of cases where we could show price effects and then I also want to note that, you know, I, I get into fights on Twitter sometimes, and one of the things I hear from Chicago schoolers is, oh, it's not, it's not all about price. There's also quality and innovation harms, and we can do all of this stuff, and we can, you know, the consumer welfare standard, it slices, it dices, it's a dessert topping, and you know, whatever. Um, it like I think you see, you know, the VCs have this expression called kill zones. They do not invest in areas that these big tech companies are in. That's a clear loss to innovation. I would call that a cost. I would call that a price effect Or I mean, again, I think the consumer welfare standard is stupid. But if you're going to pretend like the consumer welfare standard accepts innovation as a price, that's a price. That's a cost. That's prices going up. Less in, it, less variety. Less innovation. Less
0: quality. Can I respond to that?
2: So uh, <clears throat> I think you're actually. Somewhat proving my case about the Consumer Welfare Center and the way you addressed it. Okay, then it's all settled. We're done. But I think we're done. Uh, so, the price of uh, advertising collapse, first off, I mean, newspapers, their business model was struggling for a long time before the internet came around. The internet accelerated a process that, that had been undergo. That they had a lot of trouble with advertising, and I think that when you look at... Actually, just, just to say, the peak of
1: ad revenue for newspapers was in 2006. It's not to say there weren't other things right, going on, right.
2: but the business model was basically healthy until then. They're badly managed. I will agree with you. Right, right. So, and, and what this gets to, actually, the badly managed point is, is what I really wanted to underscore. By looking at um, ad revenue for newspapers and how they distribute news, you're essentially engaging in a form of nostalgia for the way the news industry worked at a certain point in time. And you're you're taking a business model that we're familiar with and saying that business model should exist forever. Now, it it might be more difficult for the Wall Street Journal or New York Times to to gain revenue online through various reasons. That is not – just because that might be true – does not mean that we should privilege the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal to engage in business the exact same way that they've engaged in it for the last couple hundred years. They should, they're should they having trouble, and they're thinking about it, and I think they made a lot of early missteps in the way that they went online. I, I don't think that's too debatable. They, they even themselves have, have admitted that there was problems. Similarly, um, uh, the investment issue that you brought up is interesting, certainly interesting and worthy of consideration, the idea that VCs look at the way the, the market is currently operating and they won't put money into certain bets. That in itself is, an, is, is almost a, a nostalgic view of the way you think certain things should be funded. We're looking at the late 90s and the 2000s saying, oh, well, this is what VCs were doing then. Therefore, that's what they should do forever. In fact, what you would do if you were looking at the costs and benefits of, of that situation, you would say, well, what? where is the more optimal allocation of capital? Is it within firms? Is it outside of firms? Is it better for Google to have a giant research division that reduces certain transaction costs for, 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 for programmers to, to work on apps? Is it better for that Google to go out and do a direct acquisition of small teams of developers before they develop their app? Or is it better for VCs to do that? I'm neutral on that question. I think that's something that you would need to empirically evaluate. I, I, don't, I don't think it's fair to presume automatically that just because VC capital is not flowing into certain things, that's evidence of harm. You should look at it, but it's not direct evidence. Um, and something like Foundum, you brought up Foundim um, as, a, as a cost to society. Honestly, if you ever looked at Foundum's website, I don't think it's a cost to society that they're not operating anymore, but that's my personal view. But Foundum is, is another piece of evidence of this nostalgic concept that there should be a certain business model that firms are allowed to employ and that larger firms should be forbidden from um, operating themselves in a way that makes it hard for other business models to operate. Foundum was a comparison shopping site where they would go and they would scrape um, search results from places, and they wanted... Google to direct ad traffic to their website, and they felt that it was their right to get traffic from Google. I mean, it was nice while it lasted, but everyone who was involved in the internet over the last 20 years on the tech side, I was a software developer for years beforehand, before I was a lawyer, um, understood that you had to be sensitive, that that Google's algorithm was was changing, and, and everyone knew that. And as a consumer, I benefited because as Google has developed, I recognize that I'm getting more and more of what I want more quickly. As, as a person who represented businesses, I understood that I needed to be sensitive to that and find other avenues and other ways to channel the firms I represented um, so that they could operate online.
0: I'm going to shift now. Um, in the prior conversation, both of you, I think, mentioned the word platform, platforms and net, net, network effects. And... Um, those of you who are inside antitrust, you know there's a vigorous debate among economists about whether platforms um, should be subject to a different kind of antitrust analysis than normal markets. And the American Express Supreme Court decision generated much, much intellectual firepower on both sides. A lot of third homes were built, as best I can tell um, from, from that case. <laughs> um, Uh, (laughs) Just
1: just as an aside, I heard that a lawyer working on the IBM case in the 70s named his boat Section 2. (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah. uh, My view of antitrust is prices in Northwest go up when antitrust is vigorous, but that's a very cynical view. Um, So platform economics. uh, So Dennis Carlton of Chicago and Mike Katz of Berkeley, both very prominent IO economists have said, there shouldn't be a separate. You sh- you shouldn't have a separate kind of antitrust uh, economics for platforms. And Dick and Z from MIT and David Evans from University of College London say, no platforms are different. And so, does does that is something we should discuss today?
2: Um, uh, so, it's kind of a yes and no answer. Um, platforms are a different business model. They're not something that is... uh, I think the literature is pretty clear that they're not something that is so fundamentally different that you need to develop like a new form of economics or have a a completely separate type of competition doctrine for. What you need to do is modify existing doctrines so they fit better. I think a a good example of this... So Amex was one. The American Express case, just to give you a quick overview, um, dealt with um, whether um, American Express was... Um, engaging in, in um, anti-competitive behavior by requiring that the merchants who accepted American Express um, not steer customers to competing forms of payment, cash or than credit cards. Uh, so one of the, so in order to be a merchant who accepted American Express, you to sign this agreement saying, I promise when someone comes up to pay with American Express, I won't um, say, well, I'll give you a discount if you pay with cash. Because American Express is notoriously offers higher fees. And what the American Express case is about is um, the plaintiffs they initially uh, they brought their case saying well look at look at these look at the effects on the, the merchants this is clearly an anti-competitive harm for a variety of reasons and the way the case came out in the Supreme Court was to say actually it's a mistake to only look at um, the plaintiff side or the yeah, the plaintiff side of this the merchants um, because by charging those higher fees to the merchants what that actually does is it creates um, uh, first off, there's there's an instantaneous transaction, right? So there's a coupling, a tight coupling between the merchant and the consumer at the time of purchase. So they're they're very related. And second, by being able by charging those fees, what Amex is really doing is, is being able to generate its platform where the American Express Express cardholders are able to enjoy a lot of benefits. So essentially it's a wealth transfer across two sides of a platform um, in a certain sense. And and American Express's argument and what the Supreme Court accepted was that this was actually a necessary part of the analysis. It's not to say that American Express is entitled to do this, but to say that when you're looking at something that operates as a, in the Supreme Court's terms, a transaction um, platform, something that's two sided, there's people on either side of the platform, that you need to consider the costs and benefits on both sides of that because they are intertwined. There's been a lot of pushback on that. But I think that's a refinement of antitrust to handle that. And I think I, I mentioned this before Apple v. Pepper demonstrates that antitrust law is both capable, it hasn't been decided yet. This is is just like a preliminary view on it, is capable of handling these platforms uh, and also needs extension. So Apple v. Pepper is a case where um, uh, there's an allegation from Pepper in in a class action suit of plaintiffs saying that Apple is engaging anti-competitive behavior by forcing a certain kind of um, fee structure on developers. And the Apple and the defendants um, are saying, um, oh, actually, there's this antitrust doctrine called the Indirect Purchaser Doctrine that came out of, I believe it was the 70s, um, Illinois Brick. And um, basically what this doctrine says is, as an antitrust plaintiff, um, you can only sue if if you're the immediate purchaser. You can only sue those who engage in anti-competitive behavior if you've purchased from them, if if a firm purchases from a, a, someone who engages in anti-competitive behavior and then they sell that product into downstream commerce, the indirect purchaser doctrine says, no, you, can, you can't go back to the monopolist and sue them for damages. I think Apple v. Pepper and, and um, the App Store model for Apple demonstrates that we need to rethink that doctrine a little bit. It doesn't clearly apply, and everybody's trying to fit it in perfectly, but I think the Supreme Court is actually going to look at that and is going to say um, that doctrine needs to be tailored in some to some extent, and I think that that doctrine, when you look at it, and then you go back and you look at American Express, you actually see that there's this um, tension in antitrust law that as you uh, as you adjust the contours, so American Express made it a little bit harder on the pleading side to, cu- to bring an antitrust case, because now you have to account for two sides of a market. Apple v. Pepper might actually open up standing issue and say, now it's easier to bring it. So you might actually get a larger volume of antitrust complainants who have a, a tougher time making out their case. And that's actually could be very good. That could be us trying to, to to tackle these new realities. And it probably will need further refinement. Well, I am not a lawyer, thank God. So um, I will
1: just uh, note, we filed a brief in Apple v. Pepper and on Amex. And I'll just say, I think Amex decision was interesting. I think they Narrowed it pretty substantially by talking about the instantaneous right. piece, so it's not necessarily—it's um, not as we, big a
2: deal as a lot of people. Not as big right, as
1: yeah. we okay. were worried about. You know, them basically granting immunity. What what effectively our concern about that case was that they would say, "Oh, well, if you want to bring a case against, say, Google, they have like eighty billion products, and not eighty, but they have eight products with more than a billion users. To bring a case, not only do you have to prove that they're doing some harm." with one of its products, but you also have to prove that they're not creating some benefit with some of one of its other products somewhere else in the Google empire. right? And then that's basically an impossible burden of proof. So it's effectively a getting rid of all antitrust enforcement under the guise of refining the law. There's been a lot of refinement um, in the last 40 years. Um, so I guess that's, uh, that was our worry about Amex. So for you, there's mischief in Amex. Yeah, I think there's mischief in Amex. I mean, my view. So we looked. At, we filed a brief in the, the AT and T Time Warner case, and we think the court, uh, the district court, made a, a sort of a bad ruling. Um, but the appeals court basically said, in upholding the ruling, that the consumer welfare approach, this very sort of, you know, empirically really really refined and empirically studied, totally random guess about the future, um, that that was silly. They were like, you. But that's discon- not a, pla- that's not hang a platform. On, case, hang on though, a second. Right? And, well, no, it is because AM- AT&T's essential argument is we need to buy Time Warner so we can compete with these platforms. We're going to bring in all. This- we- then they bought AppNexus, which was an-, an ad firm. They're trying to build a platform. It's the you know, if it's Godzilla and Mothra, you better become you know, Mecha Godzilla or whatever. That's what AT&T's strategy was. And the judge said, Yeah, that's what they're trying to do. Um, the appeals court said, You don't need to come up with these weird fancy models. You can just show non-price uh, effects, and innovation harms. And, our, and also said you know there hasn't been, this is called a vertical merger case where a company buys a customer or a supplier, not one of its direct rivals. And the court said there hasn't been a vertical merger case in 40 years. And this doesn't change the law. The district judge was very clear about that. And the appeals court upheld it and said it doesn't change the law. We're, we're not sure what the law is because there hasn't been any doctrine, any case law created for 40 years. And there's a lot of people that have lots of different views. And so we think that one of the things that the Department of Justice should do and the FTC and Congress is start to think about what these vertical mergers are. Because these platforms are about, I mean, first of all, a lot of them are public protocols that have been privatized. Um, But but these are platforms where they, they dominate one area of one market, and then they leverage that power into another area of the market, often through a merger, sometimes through uh, anti-competitive behavior, but usually both. And this is something where there isn't clear doctrine, because there hasn't been any enforcement, and it's time to start thinking about this and coming out with new vertical merger guidelines. Now, of course, minor just, just break it all up,
0: but that's we the We have gist- to save some time for audience questions. Sorry to have delayed so long. Uh, it's hard to see. Do we have a mic for? Maybe we'll have to ask questions just. just
2: why your, don't you ask your outside voice? It.
0: Yes, sir. Use your outside voice. Wait, uh, there's,
2: is there a mic coming right here? Yep. Okay. Uh, one of the questions recently there's been a
0: lot of issues. Mike isn't on.
3: Hmm. Recently, there have been a lot of issues with payment processor discrimination, having to do with the Patreon, people being banned from Patreon. Tim Poole has done a lot of videos about this. Martin Goldberg and some other videos have talked about it online a lot. Um, Bob Rubin and so forth, um, Sargon Akkad and so forth. Are you familiar with the collusion and with the fact that Lori, um, what's his name, Lessig, um, is is filing a complaint with the FTC over payment processor collusion, particularly PayPal, and the attempt to ban Subscribestar. And, um, the collusion with MasterCard and so forth, um, supposedly they're being told by the Southern Poverty Law Center which, you know, which speakers to ban because, because they're the supposed ties to the alt-right or because it ties to extremism. That this whole political scene is affecting um, the willingness of companies to work with them and be associated with them because it hurts their brands. It's payment processor collusion, not platform collusion alone. Um, although there are some issues with YouTube and Facebook too, are you familiar with the payment processor issue? I thought you might talk I, about I've, that. Maybe that will be this afternoon. That's
2: a little outside of what I normally focus on. I'm, I, kind of, read the what Lessig's doing. Tim there.
3: Poole is the person to look up online. He's right. a lot about.
1: Can it. I? I'll just make two points on that. First of all, I think that it illustrates. I'm a little bit familiar with that. It illustrates a point that I was making which is that these are private governing forces. When they have control over something that is as fundamental as the payment system or as our speech platforms, this is a private governing system. And we have to be suspicious of private governing systems that engage in discrimination of any form. On the second point, there is a lot of complaining from conservatives about conservative bias on these platforms. It is ridiculous, it is wrong, it is, it is immoral to make those arguments because it is not true, and it is a clear attempt to bully these platforms into into deprioritizing left-wing content and promoting conservative content. And if you make those arguments, you are going to lose potential allies who are concerned about anti-competitive activity. Instead, you are going to cause us to say, you are just trying to bully these platforms into purposing these governing forces for your team as opposed to our team. I am happy to work with anyone on making sure that these Institutions don't discriminate, and making sure that these institutions are are not don't have power over our commons. But if you do run the conservatives are 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 have no voices, I that that's something where you lose you know you lose real allies.
2: And, and I would just like add, when when Matt says you should be afraid of platforms that, that govern, there's a difference between government and governance. Government is when you have the implicit use of the of force in order to to apply your terms of service uh, as a government on your on your citizens. Uh, they don't really have a choice. Governance is when you expect private institutions to have codes of conduct that they, they use to, to police the behavior of their users. I don't believe I would want to interact with a firm that did not have some sort of sense of what it believed was appropriate and inappropriate conduct within itself, and I would expect it to police it. Like, if... if uh, if my Facebook feed was suddenly flooded with with uh, loads of inappropriate content, I wouldn't sue them. I would just stop using Facebook because it would just no longer be worth it to me, and I would expect Facebook to do a better job. And there's a big discussion going on right now around what's called Section 230 and what it did and did not... So it was initially initially meant to encourage the... the, the um, what's called good Samaritan behavior, so that these these platforms would go out and they would proactively police themselves to make sure that that, uh, illicit content did not appear on it. And there's some argument to be made that they perhaps have not done as good a job with that as they could have. Um, And so there's a discussion on that right now. I would be very wary to look at these platforms and say that they're not permitted to to have people on them that they don't want. If they don't... I would prefer it if Google did not um, politically censor. But if, if there was a company policy that said they don't want to promote the spread of alt-right propaganda, I don't know. I, I personally would be OK with that. Um, and I don't think that's a competition issue. I think that's something where we're trying to figure out what, what a good society is. and that, that gets back to my issue that maybe that's something that Congress needs to figure out in its First Amendment doctrine uh, discussion, free speech doctrine. Maybe there's something else there. It, it, I would just be very concerned. Yeah. Um, Hi, I'm from Comcast, and I'm here to help.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, we've run out of time, and this discussion will go on at lunch. Um, Let me just thank everybody for uh, the lunch is at the second level of Cato on the uh, George Yeager Conference Center. The restrooms are located on the second floor on your way to lunch, and uh, please allow the speakers to exit the auditorium. They'll be available at lunch to talk. Thank you very much. You get to go out first, (laughs) don't you?